Hey there, and welcome to the Pseudo Show, brought to you by the Destination Linux Network. Today, we sit down with Dustin Kryzak to talk about his journey from warehouse worker to cloud engineer and the keys to being successful in the technology industry. All that and more on this episode of the Pseudo Show. Welcome to the Pseudo Show, your home for all things enterprise open source. I'm Eric, the IT guy, and today we have a great episode lined up for you. Dustin Kryzak and I met a number of years ago over an online community just like our Pseudo Show Matrix Room. He joins us this episode to talk about how his career has progressed from hardware to the cloud. Speaking of the cloud, this episode is brought to you by none other than DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. You can get started today with a $100 free credit by going to do.co slash dln and creating an account. I am excited every episode to tell you about DigitalOcean. And today's spotlight is the Deploy to DO button. All you have to do is add some basic configuration options to a deploy.template.yaml file to your GitHub repository and the button to your repository's readme file, and boom. Now, anyone wanting to deploy your application can do so right to their DigitalOcean account. Check out their docs linked in the show notes to see all the different variables and options that are available for your application. The Deploy to DigitalOcean button is just another reason why DO is the preferred cloud provider for the pseudo show. Just go to do.co slash DLN to get started with your $100 free credit. Good for two months. And thank you to DigitalOcean for being a sponsor of the pseudo show and the total, entire, complete destination Linux network. As I mentioned in our opening, our guest today is Dustin Kryzak. He and I go back a number of years. He's a member of the Ubuntu and Ubuntu Budgie teams. And our guest today, welcome to the Pseudo Show, Dustin. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, glad to have you. Like most of the community relationships I'm sure we all share, you and I met first online over Telegram. We started chatting because of some of our shared interests. You know, Maybe it was different for you, but for me, the big moment I can remember is a couple of years ago, we were hanging out at Linux Fest Northwest. And if I remember correctly, we were heading back to the hotel after a long day of conferencing and, and you gave me a lift. We, we sat in the check-in lane for what had to have been well over an hour just talking about Ansible and your goal of being able to deploy an entire laptop all of your applications and data while, get this, sitting at a coffee shop. <laughs> Are you still working on that project? Uh, I'm going to say, unfortunately, and the only reason is, is I probably spend more time on it than I should. I've rewritten it like four times only because <laughs> I just keep changing the way I want to structure it. You know, like the original one was just a playbook. Straightforward, simple, flat file. Who cares? Go for it. Works well. Still there. I have the repo archived only because then I decided to port it to roles. Because, you know, why not over-engineer things? Because, you know, we all have too much time on hands. And then <laughs> I kind of hit this wall on it the other day, and I was like, why am I doing this? So now I'm going back to my flat file, and I'm just going to roll with it from there because there's really no benefit to doing it one way or the other. It's like a one-off Ansible script that does my machine, right? So there's always going to be individual preferences. No one's going to be able to take it and just run it like a role. You know, it's not meant to be portable. Mm -hmm. And it's, to be honest, that aspect is kind of a waste of time other than the learning exercise, right? Like if, if you look at it from the learning point of view, well, now, you know, the time I spent writing the roles, it, it was good. You, you tend to go in and dig it, look at what other people have done and you just pick up best practices, ideas, ways to go about it. But I think like just from a personal point of view, I'm just going to roll it back to a flat playbook works well. <laughs> I've done that as well. And I, I started mine off as a flat playbook. Now it's a role, but the whole reason why I did it as a role is because I have, I wanted a uh, variable files with that contain all my flat packs that I'm using, all the RPMs that are installed on my system, uh, that are not in the uh, default install of Fedora. And, uh, it's just so I can keep this separate as I add new applications or remove applications. I just go into the, into those variable files and just change, you know, remove or add what the applications I'm using. That, that's the whole reason why I stuck with a role. Otherwise I pr uh, probably go back to a flat playbook myself. <laughs> All I did to get around that is I just have multiple YAML files that are just includes, right? So I'll have like a snap.yaml. And that's where all my snap packages are installed. I'll have an app.yaml. That's where that. And I even got to the point where I was doing things like budgie desktop settings. If I set my wallpaper, it was done in my repo. I've, I've kind of flipped on this one back and forth, but the playbook would install a cron job. 
that would then use Ansible pull from the repo to update all my systems. If I was going to change uh, wallpaper, I would just change it there, check it in within 10 minutes, all my workstations had it, you know, it's just too convenient. I mean, overkill. Yeah. You know, we like to over-engineer as I mentioned. So Dustin, I know you and I go, uh, go back a number of years, but uh, for our audience, why don't you kind of tell us a bit about yourself and, uh, and what got you involved in technology? Uh, to be honest, it was a complete accident. <laughs> I was late to computers. I never even touched one until I was 22, 23. And it was only by coincidence. And what I mean by that is, is you know, I'd been working in you know, the food industry is all we all do when we're starting out in life. And the restaurant I was working for was being sold. So I had the option of either continue to work for the new owner or take a layoff. So to kind of kick myself in the butt and kind of do something new, I took the layoff. But I'm also the kind of person where I hate being unemployed. So what happened is I just went to, I don't know what the equivalent is in your local area. It's called Manpower locally here. And it's day labor, really, is all it is. I just wanted to have a paycheck coming in until I figured out what I was going to do. I essentially got placed in a computer distribution warehouse. This company operated entirely out of day labor, like everyone picking the orders, the people taking care of the inventory. Other than managers, everyone was day labor. And in a nutshell, within a month, they bought my contract out because I guess apparently I was competent (laughs) or something along those lines. (laughs) Uh, So they hired me in. I got placed in inventory. I was made the inventory manager. Uh, So I had responsibility for something like 80 to $90 million worth of computer gear, books, and software. The funny thing is, is the head office was across the country. There were no IT people in Vancouver where I live or that office. Because I was doing inventory, I had to work on a computer. So at that time, it was just a terminal client for an AS400 application. Nothing fancy, just doing that. But I got hooked just doing inventory Mm. entry. Because I was a manager, I was allowed to sign inventory out for personal use. That included computers, books, and software. So for the first four years where I worked there, I never owned a computer because I didn't have to. I could just sign out the newest one out of inventory, take it home, bring it back. But part of that was reading the books. So at that time, computer books were quite frequent in bookstores, places like Best Buy. So we had a large inventory and I just started reading them. Whenever the IT department from across the country would call because they needed hands, whether it was to drop RAM into a server or something like that, I made sure it was me uh, just because I was interested. And they understood what I was and wasn't capable of. And they were very accepting of that. And so after a year, they basically hired me into the IT department as the first guy on the West Coast. I worked there for four years in an enterprise of about 6,000 people. And by the time I left there, I just had four years of enterprise experience and I never looked back. I never went to school. I'm all self-taught. I never had to get student loans. I never had to go through any of the struggles that some people trying to break into the industry do today. Because when you support a user base of 6,000 people, that means something, you know? It, It got to the point where they were flying me across the country because I became one of the senior resources. And just based on that experience, I just never had to look back. You know, we were deploying warehouses. So I don't know, are you familiar with uh, what Bell Express View is, satellite company? They were moving into Canada. They needed a warehouse and that was something we did. We were the distribution point for that. So we had to set up everything, connectivity, the computer systems, all that. Just interesting stuff for early day IT when you're just kind of getting going and it's it just looks great on a resume. And then it just kind of mm-hmm. went from there. When you first got into IT at this company, was this mostly focused around like data center and supporting the data center or is this also like, or was it mostly focusing around uh, supporting the end user computing? So I would say the reason they hired me was to support the end users. Like that was the way they could justify it. Uh, At that time, uh, I would say it was more common for the enterprise, at least from my experience in my region, it could be different elsewhere, was that you had your data centers in your offices. You know, people Mm -hmm. weren't outsourcing it as much, putting them in co-location, things like that. You know, a lot of that had to do because it was traditional office computing, you know, office file server, print share, you needed it there. Um, So they hired me or justified me for that, but they leveraged me everywhere. My interactions with the people in our location was obviously tech support, but, you know, it wasn't a huge environment. I would say there were probably about 10 servers in our location, but they were, you know, like an exchange 5.5 cluster. 
you know, it was pre-active directory. So when I first got in there, it was like NT4, uh, Windows 95. Some of the shipping systems were still Windows 3.1.1. So one of my first projects was actually to migrate to Active Directory when Windows 2000 came out. Hmm. I got a lot of experience right out of the gate because even through that, we had to go through all the Y2K testing. We had a JD Edwards implementation for ERP before it was purchased by Oracle. So there was a lot of implications behind that and requirements and ensuring business continuity, really. Dustin, you're bringing me back. Uh, JD Edwards, I haven't heard that in a long time. <laughs> and... Uh, I was one of the first uh, IT projects I did was migrating from Exchange 5.5 5 to 2003. That was a uh, uh, so that was uh, quite some time ago, <laughs> and uh, just yeah, bringing me back. We'll just say JD Edwards has scarred me for my professional career because that unfortunately was not the end of it for me. <laughs> uh, later in my career, I worked in the mining industry. We went through probably no less than four deployments of the same application because the way the business approached it was, I don't want to say it was wrong, but it was wrong. <laughs> you know, it was the kind of thing where they were hiring consultants <laughs> and deploying servers before they had even captured a single requirement. Like they didn't know what they had to build before they hired the consultants. So no one could start writing the customizations because the business process wasn't defined yet. What did HR need out of that system? No one could tell you. So okay, well, now let's go write the code for HR. Well, pff, w what does that look like? And <laughs> they made that same mistake like three times. So I, I don't even want a hazard to put a dollar amount on those failed deployments. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the three of us kind of came into the industry when it was when there was this big shift from doing things by hand to putting them into the computer and it just being this huge unknown. And, and it's been funny over the last few years to watch the DevOps movement kind of take form and, and to grow. And, and now people do releases every single day and don't think of anything of it. But when I got into the industry, especially when I started the shift from uh, desktop support into server administration, and, and particularly uh, Linux administration, there was just this nightmarish project management process where you plan for two months, you work on things for six months, what you started planning for changes. So now you've got to start planning all over again. And then the project managers are, are upset with you because you're over budget and you're over time and then finally, after after twelve months, your your six month project is ready to go to production, and you deploy it. And then you spend the next two weeks basically camped out at your data center because, well, the the thing you've been working on all this time just didn't work. Any anytime I hear about multiple deploys a day or or automated deployments or anything, I'm just like, yeah, you did. You don't know. <laughs> all you young kids don't remember what it was like no, back in the day. It's <laughs> and what's interesting about that when you say something like back in the day kind of is true. And what I mean by that is, is there's a lot of scenarios that you just don't have to deal with anymore because the industry's become either abstracted or refined. Although with the abstractions and the refinements come more complexity, but you miss out on mm -hmm. certain aspects of the way it used to be done when it was a little more manual. So for example, when again, I worked in mining, we designed and built a, uh, mine site down in Mexico that was in the middle of the desert where we had to wire up 16 square kilometers of fiber optics. We needed radio systems because there were no cell phones. Like that was not a thing. And the mine radio systems had to support fire ambulance rescue. So you're sitting there designing systems that actually have mm -hmm. risk and risk that could make or break somebody's life essentially. And so if you think about that, okay, great. You're mm -hmm. going to try to build for redundancy. You're going to try to do that. Well, how do you do that in a desert where there's no power, where there's no real connectivity other than what you design and build? That ultimately ended up being shipping containers with a rack of equipment and the whole wall being car batteries and solar panels. You don't get to do that anymore. Like you don't get to, mm -hmm. okay, I need a guy to come in and weld battery racks. Like you're, you're abstracted from that these days, I feel like. I mean, I'm sure there's still people who, you know, are working in particular industries that maybe are still dealing with stuff like that. But I would say the average technician is largely abstracted from it. Yeah, kind of going into the topic, I mean, like the, uh, what you just said, you know, we, we've abstracted so much. Like we used to build resilient systems, tune the hardware right, make sure you have two of everything, if not three of everything. Uh, now we... 
Eric's told me that you spend a lot of your time now in AWS. I mean, that uh, I ended my uh, sysadmin career doing a uh, building applications in AWS and in Azure. Tell us uh, how, how about your journey into uh, the cloud, so to speak. I actually got hired into a company to be their security person. That was another one of those jobs where that was the justification for the headcount. But I was actually a split role where I had that responsibility from a, let's call it a procedure point of view, policy, that kind of stuff. Not so much like being that person who's going to audit an application at a deep level. Like that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not skilled enough or trained enough or qualified enough to do that. Now, this company in their operations was very cloud forward. And part of the reason is they are the software development company that developed the PCOIP protocol which you may or may not be familiar with. You know, it's like VMware View was kind of the first adopter. It's a VDI, highly efficient. Where the cloud comes into it is they're also the company that developed the protocol and by extension, the agent that Amazon Workspaces uses for their VDI, like desktop as a service. And because they were an Amazon partner and looking where the industry was going, they were all in. Because the theory by the CEO was, is if we can't adopt it, how can we expect our customers to? At the time when I came on board, they had some presence in AWS. They were going there. They were in the middle of migrating because uh, we had two offices in the same parking lot even. Uh, One building had the main data center and probably one, two, three, four, four hardware test labs because they also built silicon. They designed silicon chip around the protocol for efficiencies. So we were in the middle of collapsing uh, one on-prem data center and four test lab data centers, essentially. Uh, moving production, or we started with production, into AWS. And when we say moving production, we mean everything. That included the desktops. We had no more desktops on-prem. They were just what were called zero clients at the time that had that chip. And we Mm -hmm. deployed everything in workspaces. All the file print services were up there. Everything. Like, if you could think of it, it was there. And we were, over time, decommissioning our on-premise footprint as small as possible. So much so that by time I had left that company, we were down to a single lab and no production on-prem data center. And with that came the trials and tribulations of how do I do this? How do I learn this? And how do I make it happen? Because we had buy-in from the company. We had budget. Like it's not, I'm going to assume it's not frequent that you basically have the directive of CO with the budget being what the budget needs to be to make it happen because it's part of the business. I was there for four years four or five years, somewhere in there. And by the time I left the company, I was actually managing DevOps uh, and the operations and kind of merging everyone into one. Same thing, just walked out with five years of moving workloads and being a, a development house that included lift and shift. The company was building a SaaS application. So there was context there where we were deploying a SaaS app for our developers, because that application was growing and looking to, it wasn't so Amazon focused. So we were even getting to the point where we had presence in all three. We ultimately, Amazon was our hub, but we had things in Azure, GCP, a little bit on-prem, very little more around hardware testing and Amazon. So great experience. Again, probably not as common as people like to talk about in the industry is, you know, multi-cloud, like it's a marketing term, in my opinion. A lot of well-known industry people kind of say you don't go there unless you need to, like truly need to, but I've operated there and it's helped. So then there you go, experience and you walk out the door again. And now all of a sudden you got a different way, uh, path in your career. I can definitely relate to that approach to advancing your career. After my first IT job, I, I got to let go because they reorganized the team. So new new guy on the team, you know, pretty usually the first one to go if, uh, if they downsize the team. So I was unemployed for a few months and basically got to the point where I took the first IT job I could find. And it was basically a call center support for an insurance company here in Kansas City. And I was only there for about three or four months before I managed to find a full-time sysadmin role. But while I was there, it was it was interesting to, to kind of get a glimpse of what their operations were. Because they just, in the year before I got there, their, their office in downtown 
had all their HR, all their insurance support analysts. Uh, and then ironically, uh, in the basement was the <laughs> IT department. I, I know it's cliche, but it's true. I, I can't make this up. Uh, on on In one wing of the building were the, quote, important IT folks. It was the sysadmins and the network engineers and that kind of thing. And the other wing where I got to work uh, overnights, 12-hour shifts for, for about three months, was the call center. And the call center sat right across the hall from the data center. So it was always cold. And yet, for some reason, I still had to wear khakis. I'm I'm still better about that. You should be. <laughs> what was really cool about that job, even in the few months that I was there, they had just made this transition away in their in their self-hosted data center away from racks and racks and racks of, of servers. So when I got there, there was this huge, like, I don't know, 100 by 50 foot space. It was raised floors, the whole nine yards. And there were three short rows of racks uh, stacked top to bottom with with big 4U servers and their mainframe. That was it. Because what, what this insurance company did was they'd, they'd gotten rid of all their servers. They consolidated everything. I mean, everything down into virtualization. And it was either VMware View or it was Citrix's uh, VDI application. But everything had moved virtual. And, and it was really cool to it, first off, looking at the data center is like looking into a ghost town. But then on the flip side, I could manage anyone's desktop anywhere in not just the metro area, but anywhere within the region because this this insurance company was was the hub of the region. And so remote offices, people connecting from from their their home computers into their virtual desktops, it was really cool because I could reset their machine from anywhere. There was no, hey, I spilled coffee on my desktop. There's there's this cheap little, you know, $90 terminal and, you know, maybe $20 worth of mouse and keyboard. And that was it. That that and a and a pair of monitors was was their hardware deployment. It was so helpful to not have to manage people getting all of the all, all the all the dust bunnies and everything in their desktop because that was my first job. I got to clean out people's computers and reimage them. That was fun. Uh, but now it was like, oh, your your VDI is slow. Okay, here, let me reset it for you. Oh, your your virtual desktop's crashed. Okay, let me just redeploy it for you. Why? Because we don't have to manage these these hardware systems anymore. So there's definitely an advantage to going to virtual desktops, to going to to going to virtualized hardware. And I say all that to say that their next step was then, as the cloud was starting to kind of come of age, their their hope was to move into AWS or or something along those lines and get out of the hardware business entirely. I want to expand on this multi-cloud thing. I've gotten into several debates about multi-cloud, whether if it's a just a market, but marketing term. But I work with customers every day. They have uh, multiple private clouds on premise, whether if that's built on top of VMware or OpenStack, or and they also have AWS. They have Azure. Like we're talking about these huge Fortune 500 companies that deal with a lot of legacy. I actually think that multi-cloud is a thing. It's going to be a thing. It's going to be a thing forever. Maybe not multi-cloud in the sense of like, oh, I have a system here and a system there. I actually like the definition of like hybrid cloud, like these systems will actually be able to talk to each other, not just be managed independently and separate. That, that's my that's my opinion on how the industry is going, just working with my customers. Actually managing multi-cloud is at least uh, uh, in recent experience. What do you think of that? Like, I know that's like a kind of a loaded question, but like multi, I think multi-cloud is going to be a thing because of... There's always been an aversion to vendor lock-in. Many of these companies, especially like the, you know some of the big banks, the and the bit and the big telcos. It comes down to it depends, and what I mean by that is, what are your business requirements? There's always the right place, right time for the right architecture. I think a lot of people tend like when you talk vendor lock-in. Let's be real: in your physical data center, you have vendor lock-in anyways. Whether it's a vendor based on your firewalls, your virtualization platform, where your data is, data gravity is a thing, you have lock-in today. It's already there. And when I look at multi-cloud, where I have a problem with that is when people say they have to be multi-cloud because of vendor lock-in. I call shenanigans. (laughs) That's just sort of my point of view on it because you're already (laughs) locked in. There's already work, effort, and engineering 
architecture and design that has to happen when you're moving any system. It doesn't matter where it is. You have work to do. You have costs that you're going to incur. If you're doing multi-cloud just for that reason, you're also missing out on the efficiencies that each individual platform gives you, right? Now, whether that is using platform services, right? Because if you're really worried about vendor lock-in, you're never going to use a platform service. You're now missing the benefits and efficiencies that that provides your team to focus on something more interesting to innovate versus keep the lights on, right? You're also potentially going to uh, have higher pricing because the reality is if you're shuffling data between all three clouds, you're getting hammered on egress data charges. There's a reason that data gravity is a thing. You generally want applications, data, everything to be as contained as possible. Business requirements will actually dictate that, not personal opinion. But you're missing out by being more worried and more focused on this vendor lock-in or perceived vendor lock-in. You're going to have it. It doesn't matter where you are. You're not going to get away from it. You're still going to have the same considerations and requirements to move it, whether it's a cloud vendor, on-prem, or a hybrid situation, right? Like it's it's going to exist. It doesn't go away just by going multi-cloud because there's nuances in every platform and you're going to have to adjust for that no matter where you're going. If you genuinely need it, do it. I'm, I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying I think people look at it for the wrong reasons. You know, it's not actually based on a business requirement. It's based on a position of fear, right? Same with people, whether they do or don't believe in the cloud usually comes from a position of fear because they haven't had the time, the opportunity, or educated themselves on what the pros and cons are. Because there are pros and cons to any environment. It doesn't matter where you are. There's pros and cons of going back on-prem. There's pros and cons of picking hyperscaler A versus B versus C or going to tier two and all of that. It's all consideration. So it's got to be business-driven, not perceived benefit. Okay, skills, right? People, you need people to operate each one of these. And the reality is people are also opinionated on the technology they want to work with. You're not going to have a guy who loves Linux necessarily go apply for a Windows job. You're not going to have a guy who loves Amazon necessarily go apply for a GCP job. And if you are multi-cloud or you're spreading your staff too thin for the wrong reasons, you could actually end up losing people. Because they're like, oh, okay, I, I, I love AWS. I'm going to work there. Well, now I have to keep up to date on Azure. I have to keep up to date on GCP and AWS and maybe something else. It's people's preference. It's a cloud practitioner's market right now. There's not enough people doing it. And guess what? They're going to go where they get the environment they want because they can. So is the real problem not so much a focus on vendor lock-in? Because it seems like in the industry, we have the advantage of having multiple tools that do the same job. So if you don't like if you don't like GCP, you can go to AWS or vice versa. So it seems like, based on what you're saying, the big problem we have today is how do you manage that? How do you enable your people to use the tool that they want? And, and while you're talking, what, what came to mind was tools like Mist.io. We just... We talked to, to Chris, the CEO of, of MIST, just a couple of weeks ago, but then also tools like Terraform or Ansible, that the, the cloud provider just becomes another layer of abstraction. So if you have a developer that likes to work in GCP, but your application runs in AWS, if you abstract that away using something like, like an Ansible playbook, they can develop under GCP as long as they commit their code back to the company repo, and then the application can still deploy under AWS. Is it really just a need to enable our people to use the tools that they want? Well, not only, I'm just saying it's a consideration, right? Your decisions, where you're going to ultimately deploy, really need to be business-driven. Part of the business is having the talent. Maybe, like, for example, where I live, AWS guys are a dime a dozen. Like, there's a lot of them around here. Doesn't hurt that Amazon has a fairly decent-sized office here, but finding a GCP guy locally, they're there, but there's not many. And so part of your decision on where you're going to go might be people-driven, you know, available talent. Does that mean people can't cross-train? Of course they can. But do they want to? Do they have the time? Like, for example, in my current role, my responsibility was primarily AWS. Very recently, I've been retasked to take on GCP as well, but still fulfill my AWS responsibilities. And I'll be honest, it's difficult to keep up, understand, and be efficient in both platforms. There's just a lot, which means if you're going to something that's multi-cloud, 
you now need to either have maybe more staff to make sure you keep your same productivity levels, or you need to cross-train maybe by having a blurred focus. Maybe you don't get the right results, but it really depends on your people, right? Today's call to action is brought to you by none other than our friends over at Bitwarden. Bitwarden is the easiest and safest way for individuals, teams, and business organizations to store, share, and sync sensitive data. In fact, they were recently named the Password Manager of the Year for 2021. If that wasn't enough reason to use it, Bitwarden is 100% open source software. Just head on over to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started. Bitwarden really showed nerds like me some love in their most recent update by releasing two new features for their browser plugins. Dark mode for the drop-down menu and a copy button for TOTP, otherwise known as your two-factor authentication code. No longer do you need to open the password entry to get your six-digit code. Now you can copy your username, password, and verification code right from the dropdown. This makes it easier than ever and quicker to get logged into your online accounts while maintaining your security. With Bitwarden, you can get started for free, or for just $10 a year, you can upgrade to the premium edition and get additional features like encrypted file storage and vault health reports. You can't beat their price or their growing functionality. Just head on over to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started. Thank you, Bitwarden, for being a sponsor of the Pseudo Show and the entire Destination Linux network. Now, back to our interview. So, Dustin, you've mentioned a couple of times that there is this skill set scarcity that the industry has to deal with. Do you, do you feel like cloud is still that place that, that we need to be focusing? Or do you think that the maybe the puck is getting ready to shift in a different direction? Well, I mean, like anything, technology it can shift at any given point. I wouldn't say that we've hit any sort of critical mass to where there's the next big thing, right? Like to me, it feels like the industry is currently kind of blended, right? Like so between operations, developer, uh, even the technologies, you know, virtualization, cloud, containers, like it comes back to the right tool for the right job. If you look at all the different compute primitives that you can use to deploy, no one is going to solve every application's problem. It feels like the process has changed more than necessarily the technology. And what I mean by that is more towards the automation, uh, API-driven, people power, people process, not necessarily getting focused on the underlying technology. There's still a lot to go. Like if you look at even something like Kubernetes and Docker, I mean, what, we're five years in, six years in, it's still got a lot of room for change. Shift in industry tends to come when it's pretty commodity. Right. Like, so virtualization was a big shift for our industry. Let's face it, virtualization is commodity now. It's everywhere. You don't necessarily hear people talking about going for virtualization training quite so much anymore. It's just like it's another tool in the tool belt that we're going to use. It's been around long enough that majority of the best practices are absorbed either through online content experience, you know, things like that. Whereas you look at something like the cloud or hyperscalers, containers, they're all still so new that there's a group of people that, you know, have been in it for a while because they were early adopters. But let's face it, like containers in the enterprise are relatively new compared to even that. Uh, enterprises, are they're just getting there. That's a great point because I can remember early on in my career, uh, there being job openings for virtualization engineers, hmm. virtualization specialists, people that all they did all day was look at this piece of hardware and figure out how to stick it into a virtual machine. Now, if <laughs> if you went and interviewed for a position like that, they'd look at you like you're crazy because like, what's hardware? Everything's virtual or everything's in the cloud. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and these abstractions require different types of experience. Like when's the last time you had to call on your, I don't know, previous experience operating a SAN? I haven't in five years at least. The concepts are great to know. They, they do apply, but it's not something that we're focusing on. I'm not going to go for SAN training. Whereas you look at things like the containers and Kubernetes and, and still the cloud, like there's not like a critical mass of people that are doing that. There's still some mystery to it, uh, especially to the enterprise, right? Maybe not the smaller developer houses where they're very much a doer versus a consumer, right? Like they're going to roll their sleeves up. They're going to get in there. The enterprise is going to take a much different approach to it. It's going to be planned. There's going to be cross-training, uh, upshifting of their skills. They're, they really have to evaluate it, right? It's it's not commodity. Uh, not everyone understands it or, you know, grokks the capabilities and benefits that you may gain. And that's where people like us come into the picture and help people either understand the types of training they need, what they need to look at, where they can go for it, you know, how to develop these careers because it's not straightforward. 
you know, I mean, I guess you could argue things like AI and machine learning, like, because those are even newer, but I kind of see those as they're a little bit of a deviation in a technical career. Yeah. I look at Kubernetes and containers and AI and machine learning. They're basically on the same path, but they're two separate tracks. I believe that's the way I feel about them. They're two separate tracks in our industry, but I also feel like you can't have one without the other. I I feel like uh, machine learning um, and containers go hand in hand, like because of the massive scale and uh, the need to do essentially instant auto scaling uh, for those types of applications, so you can do the uh, number crunching on data that it, that needs to happen. I th- the advancements that have been made in the last few years in AI are because of containers and also vice versa. A lot of the advancements in containers and and high-performance computing is because of AI. Well, each new technology provides a foundation for the next, right? It's it's just like even science, medicine, engineering, invention, they're all building on something previous and it's just the same thing. And, but at the same time, every layer of abstraction introduces new complexity, (laughs) you know, like it's like, I feel like what I was doing 10 years ago, 12 years ago, even though complex in its own way felt much more approachable than the layers required for today's industry. Like I had a conversation with one of my son's high school friends because they're looking to get into technology. And part of that was kind of uh, laying out a roadmap of career development and skill development. A lot of people just want to jump to the end. Like I'm going to be Mm -hmm. uh, a DevOps engineer. To me, DevOps or SRE or whatever buzzword position you want to talk about, (laughs) those are more of an end state uh, type career thing. You can work towards them, but the people Mm -hmm. who are going to be really good at that are the people who understand things like how disks work, you know, even if you're not dealing with them day to day, but like the newer, like anyone who goes works in the cloud, like they don't care about blinky lights anymore and they shouldn't have to. But at the same (laughs) idea, they also haven't felt the pain of, you know, hardware failures or understanding how a system works, you know, and, and it's even like with Mm-hmm. My own generation, if I look at the people before me and how they understand at a real deep rooted level how a computer works, like they have a different view of it, right? And with each new generation, new abstraction, new layer of technology, the view keeps shifting. Uh, but there's value in all the old technology as well. It just gives you that better foundation. Straw house, brick house. Yeah, I'm I'm very thankful for coming up in the industry as a traditional systems administrator. I, I can I can say this now. I couldn't say this a few years ago, but I'm very thankful that I came up in the day where you you would literally once a month or once every couple of weeks walk the data center and look at your servers and go, oh, there's a dead disk. There's a dead disk. Oh, that server fan's broken, and and just basically making a shopping list. And you'd have to go in and you'd have to take care of these servers and you'd have to make sure that they were healthy. And that's that's just something that the newer generation of technologists isn't going to understand. Well, they don't need to, right? <laughs> like they don't actually have to and they shouldn't have to, you know, like mm-hmm. the, that's what I'm saying. The view is different. Yeah. The priorities are different. It's going to move forward differently. So you talked about this this right place, right time uh, career path that you've been on. You, you kind of looked at it as, as almost a negative, but from my perspective, as, as a fellow technologist, I find that really impressive uh, accomplishment to work from working in a warehouse to basically being an AWS engineer, cloud engineer, DevOps, whatever you want to call yourself, <laughs> cloud cloud wizard for all I care at this point. Um, <laughs> But uh, certainly you've, you've had some tools or you've had some resources that you've used over the years to learn and, and to kind of guide you in that journey. One, one of the things that, that we try and strive to uh, promote every, every episode is giving some of our younger listeners or some of the listeners that are, are, are at that junction in their careers to take that next step. Are there tools or resources that you would, that you would like to, to plug and, and promote to, to help uh, people that are in that situation? Here's what I'm going to say. Don't get so focused on the technology. And here's why. Technology is relatively easy to teach, whereas people skills are not. So what I mean by that is when I was a hiring manager, yes, people had to be competent. But was I worried about whether they could deal with technology A versus B? No. Like I always tried to discern what their learning process was, how comfortable they were with change and how they could communicate. Because every super uber tech guy that I ever hired that didn't have people skills usually ended up causing more friction (laughs) in the team 
with the executives, with the other managers or directors that you were usually trying to teach someone how to, I don't want to say be a person, but how to have those people skills. And they're very hard to relay. So what I'm getting at is, is if someone's talking about developing their career, don't overlook the non-technology things because they are probably more important than the technology. The technology is a book away. People skills Mm -hmm. are going to come from taking an honest look at yourself and understanding what you can improve and where maybe you need work. Because if I came to you and said, hey, you know, Eric, you're kind of having a hard time with this here. You know, a lot of people are going to take that as maybe a shot at them as a person when it's not meant that way. It's meant to be honest feedback for improvement. Whereas if I came to you and said, hey, you know, I think you need a little uh, more experience in this area here. Go take this class. You're probably going to be stoked, right? Like you're going to be like, oh, great training. Like Mm -hmm. we all, I shouldn't say we all, but most tech people like that. Get out of your Mm -hmm. comfort zone is really the root thing. Anytime I've had a great learning experience or took my career to the next level was when I got uncomfortable. Jumping in with both feet, jumping in the deep end. You know, you know, there's a chance you're going to burn, but the only time I've had that significant change is when I took that risk. The other thing is, is people are important more than the technology. Networking. I haven't put a resume out in probably 12 years and I've switched jobs <laughs> It's who you know, right? People getting to understand you as a person, being comfortable with you. Uh, So networking, go to those meetups, go to those fests, spend time interacting with people. Open source is great for that because even though it's still a little more virtual, you're still networking. Like I can now look at my career outside of my city, whereas I couldn't do that before because I wasn't networking. You know, that's, that's something I wish I had done really early in my career is understood that. Don't be scared to get up and get in front of people. Now, I don't necessarily mean public speaking by that, although that can be beneficial as well. Don't be afraid to speak up at a meeting. Ask questions. There's no wrong question in my opinion. Yes, it depends on the corporate culture. Of course, there's always considerations, but that's something that's sorely lacking in the technical industry is people skills. It's like, I don't know about you guys, but anytime I've had a new job, I honestly don't feel like I hit my stride any time before eight months, you know, like to where I feel like I'm providing that core value to the business and the team and my peers, like there's a ramp up time Mm -hmm. and it's real people turnover. Like as when I've been managing, like it sucks. You spend all that time formulating peers, getting the team dynamics going. And if you lose someone because you wouldn't give them a whatever percentage point raise, like if it's really about money, like it's way cheaper to give someone a raise than it is to go and rehire 90% of the time I found is when you replace that person, you're probably hiring them for more money because the market shifts. You got them when the market was at X, the market's Mm -hmm. now at Y. Why would you spend that time and lose that momentum because you're trying to save $10,000 a year? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's different. Every business is different and I get it. That's kind of a blanket statement. I do recognize that. But just taking it at a general point of view, it's undervalued. People are really undervalued sometimes. It is so important to to have good self-care. And as a manager, as a leader, it, it, is, it is so important to take that time to unwind, to, to to take care of yourself, to take care of your family. It's it's unfortunate, but I've never seen corporate culture being so open to good employee care than I have in the past nine months. I mean, just look at the flood of blog posts that are mm-hmm. published every single day. And for years and years, it was how to do this in six easy steps and why this distribution is better than that distribution. But if, if you look over the past six months, there's still a lot of that, but there are so much more articles and podcasts and, and newsletters that are written that have how to take five minutes to reset, how to make a better remote meeting. And, and those those things have been so undervalued. I look at I look at so many of the interviews that I went through as my career progressed and how much of it was focused on oh so you you only worked with version 3.x well we're on 4.x so therefore you know you can't be successful in our company and and just how how blind that approach was to maybe you have this guy on our team and he's a jerk and you guys don't get along how do you fix that cuz you're right we're, technologists are usually technologists because they like to tinker they like to learn they like to get in they they like to put themselves in uncomfortable positions usually behind a screen and preferably by themselves but but it it's the focus needs to shift and i i i think we're finally starting to see that there's one other thing i wanted to mention that was very useful to me volunteering 
What I mean by that is it could be something in open source. But uh, one strategy I had earlier in my career too was even though there would be projects going on that I was not a part of, I would go to whoever the project lead was and I would ask them, can I be a fly on the wall? Can I just listen? Can I just absorb? Granted, I would go to my manager and clear, you know, that time because it is still company time. (laughs) But I would ask to be in there. And if there was a task associated with that project that I felt like I could provide value for, or even just be another set of hands, I would volunteer. And the whole idea was, is just exposure. Context. Context is everything, right? Whether it's personal work, project, people, context is everything. And just absorbing that and being a part of it and understanding the questions that, you know, someone may ask in an assessment or the considerations they would look at. It was so insanely valuable to help me develop my own approach, right? That Mm -hmm. is absolutely huge, but volunteer and, and volunteer could be in the literal sense of the word, you know, like if you need more experience, go to your local high school and volunteer to take care of the lab. You're going to learn, right? (laughs) Like, yeah, it's your time. Mm -hmm. You need your balance. I, I wholeheartedly understand that, but you have to find ways to gain experience because books, certifications, all of that, it shows that maybe you're competent. Maybe it shows that you have theoretical knowledge, but you still have to. An aptitude. Yeah, exactly. It shows that you know how to learn, which is very important. It's almost more important that you understand how to learn versus what you learned. Mm-hmm. So you have to find ways to gain that experience and, and volunteering whether it's physical, open source, within your own company, extremely invaluable. And it becomes a, a, a way of also networking, you know? Uh, I can definitely relate to that. Um, anybody that's known me for any length of time probably remembers uh, a little bit more bitter of an IT guy uh, when I was in systems administration. But uh, a couple of years ago, I had a manager who took a chance on me and I moved out of ops into sales. And moving into sales gave me the opportunities to go to conferences, to speak on my company's behalf. I, I found I, I had a real knack for it because there's there's nothing more draining for a team than having somebody mm-hmm. who hates what they do. By going out and finding something that got me excited, that got my energy levels up, I found I was a more effective teammate. I was more effective in sales. I was more effective as a community advocate. Without moving out of ops and into sales, I don't think I would have realized mm-hmm. my potential. And none of that came out of of a user manual. None of that came from taking a, a lab course on, on an online training site. That was just being out there, like you said, taking risks, going to, to Linux Fest, honestly. I mean, the last two jobs that I, I got were either due to conferences or due to contacts mm-hmm. I made at those conferences. So I, I, I guess the I guess the uh, the learning resource uh, that, that we can share today is people. Get your head out of the book. Yeah. <laughs> go talk to people. Yeah. Go interact. <laughs> the one good thing I'm liking is I'm starting to see more and more mentoring programs pop up. Yes, They tend to be a little more developer focused, but I like that concept. I love the concept of mentoring, being able to sit down and ask someone questions. You know, you got to be respectful of someone's time, right? In that mentor mentory relationship, Mm -hmm. but everybody learns a little differently. And some people really benefit from being able to look at something in the screen and have their very pointed direct questions answered. Mm-hmm. And with a mentoring program, the thing I really like is you get a much broader view than you would out of a classroom. Yes, you can go into a classroom. Some people really excel in that environment, but the peripheral view is of what the class content is, right? So with a career or the tech industry, I find it's really valuable to talk to as many people as you can, you know, really understand that people are the resource and and having that mentor that you can go ask questions to. Mm-hmm. It can be really beneficial, and I just love that that's coming up more and more often. You know, it's hard to find a mentor sometimes, right? Because everybody's only got so much time, but it's mm-hmm. insanely valuable. That's really insightful, and that I think that's something that even even on this show we've we've taken for granted is that people aspect even more than the technical. So I I really appreciate your answer to that. It, it's not at all what I was expecting, and uh, <laughs> I I think it was for the better because it it is an important reminder that we're all people first, and companies are just a collection of people united for a common goal. Well, I I, I want to echo Dustin's uh, sentiment on mentorship. I've had. Probably since I started at Red Hat, I've had five mentors. I've been a mentor uh, to at least six people now. Some of us won't leave him alone. Including uh, (laughs) Eric, uh, in terms of not just 
you know, get, it's not just about the onboarding. It's about helping, uh, with promotions. It's helping people get their, you know, go take that next, not just getting into the, into technology. It's taking their career to the next level. I wouldn't be uh, a principal architect if it wasn't for my mentors, as well as going for higher level leadership positions, uh, in the, in the company. I think it's more important in this age of our industry to have a good mentor than a good trainer. Because I think the mentors are developing better people that can do the technology work versus getting people that can do the technology work, but they can't talk to people. (laughs) Um, And I think that's more important today than ever. Yeah. I mean, come to think of it, I have probably four people I would consider mentors, both professional and personal. Yeah, I, I couldn't have said it any better. Well, a mentor benefits you no matter where you are in your career. Like that's the reality. Like it's not like you'll benefit from mm-hmm. a mentor only starting out. Okay, I've been in computing for 20 plus years, <laughs> probably more. I don't even know. I would love to have a mentor in certain areas today. It's not always easy to find one, but they're insanely beneficial. If I look at my own career, the big jumps I had were when specific managers had more than that management relationship. They took more of the mentorship role and they really gave you the chance, threw you off that dock and expected (laughs) you to swim, right? But they were there. Like if you were really tired, they were going to extend their hand. They're going to pull you out out of the lake. At the same moment, the moment you've caught your breath, they've just pushed you back in, (laughs) you know, and and it's, but it's in a good way, right? Like you're- you're really excelling and uh, developing your skill sets when uh, someone takes that approach with you. You know, like they're not going to let you fail, but they're also not going to hand it to you. They're not going to just do it for you. Well, and to tell a little story on myself, uh, I'm sure Brandon won't mind because uh, it casts him in a, in a pretty positive light. But I, I've I've mentioned on the show a couple of times that uh, at the beginning of the year, I started the shift away from just kind of a generalist solutions architect at at, uh, at work, and I'm focusing more on our core product. I'm focusing more on RHEL and coming up with ideas, and we're doing webinars and really an extension of what I'm doing here at the show. I'm secure enough in my own uh, personality to to admit that. I went to Brandon one day during one of our regular conference calls and I said, man, this is, this is, this feels good. This, I'm excited. This is the direction I want to go. And Brandon and in, in his wonderful mentor voice said, I told you that months ago. <laughs> it's like, I know I, I get it w- without having Brandon there and, and, and coaching me in that direction. I wouldn't really have found my potential in, in my current role. Hindsight's always twenty twenty, right? Like it really is. You don't know what you like until you've done it, and if you're not willing to take that chance to figure it out, then you never will. Dustin, it was a real pleasure having you on the show today. If uh, people want to find more of you, where can they go? Well, one, thanks for having me on here, and if you're looking to chat or communicate, I'm pretty much on Twitter at Bashful Robot. Uh, I tend to hover in the Telegram groups, but to be honest, I'm not very active in there just from a timing point of view. And I'm a member of so many of the groups that I get a flurry (laughs) of notifications and I lose them pretty easily. So I'd say Twitter is probably my preferred one. We will, of course, have Dustin's profile and contact links available in today's show notes. Hopefully travel starts to clear up and we can run into each other at conferences again real soon. I would very much enjoy that. I'm looking forward to something in person again. Yeah, I, I definitely hear you there. So thank you so much for joining us today. As always, your feedback is welcome. Head on over to pseudo.show slash discuss. If you'd like more of Brandon and I, you can find it over at pseudo.show and on social media at pseudoshowpodcast. You can catch more awesome content over at our network partners, destinationlinux.network. Brandon, anywhere else you'd like to send folks? You can follow me on Twitter at dbrandonjohnson or my website at open-tech.net. And you can follow me at ITGuyEric or on itguyeric.com. Remember, the Pseudo Show is your place for all things enterprise open source. Until next time.